You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Well, hello there. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. This is, uh, wait a minute, this is episode number 50. All right. With me today, we have a special guest. This is Jonathan Ying, the founder of Bargain Quest Games and the designer of Bargain Quest. Jonathan, welcome to your Tables on Fire. Hi. Glad to be here. We're super glad you're here. Why don't you kick things off and introduce yourself? All right. Uh, so yeah, my name's Jonathan Ying. I'm a game designer. Uh, I got my start at Fantasy Flight Games. I've designed a number of titles, including Star Wars Imperial Assault, Doom the Board Game, and uh, Game of Thrones the Trivia Game. Uh, I've also worked, done some development work uh, for games like uh, Battle or Second Edition and Warhammer 40k Forbidden Stars. Wow, that's, that's quite the list. <laughs> now, now, when you say you got your start at Fantasy Flight Games, I just, I just can't imagine that you just came off off the street and they're like, sure, well, you can design some fantastic games, no problem. Like, how did that play out? Well, funny story. Uh, so I was walking <laughs> down the street now. Uh, well, yeah, right. honestly, close to that, uh, I actually uh, was in the animation industry uh, before I got into game design, and I'd sort mm. of done games as a hobby, and um, I saw a post on Reddit, on the r slash board game subreddit, where people were saying, hey, Fantasy Flight Games is hiring, and uh, this was after a bunch of layoffs at DreamWorks had left me a bit adrift, and I was like, oh, that, that seems kind of neat, and it was interesting that they had an application that didn't require, like, eight to ten years of prior experience. Hmm. Um, it was a really cool application. Uh, they did some neat... It was like an essay section. It was kind of like applying to college, honestly. Wow. Uh, but one of the best parts was that they had a thing which is just write the rules to rock, paper, scissors for someone who has never encountered it before. <laughs> and it's a really fascinating exercise because how do you describe scissors in text? Like, right. It was, like... <laughs> yeah, right. it was it, it was cool, and it was a very neat application. Uh, they hmm. liked me enough that they called me for an interview. We talked a bit, and they flew me out to make sure that I wasn't a jerk. <laughs> and mainly, the things that I was hired for were like my ability to work as a team, uh, some writing skills, and overall creativity and fundamental knowledge of the Star Wars universe seemed to be big selling points for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting because I had no uh, prior professional game design experience before that. Um, wow. I'd done some, like, I showed up with a prototype of something that I had been cooking for a while, and so that sort of let them know that I was serious about it, and they did, uh, the essay section did ask about previous designs that you were proud of. So, I had certainly thought about design beforehand, but that was my first real job in the industry, and uh, they were really kind to give me that opportunity, and uh, hopefully I did them proud. That, that is pretty incredible. I mean, talk about living the dream. Right. I mean, a full-time game designer with zero ex previous experience. That's, that's incredible. I think, I think we're all jealous right now. Yeah. The <laughs> only thing that sucked was moving to Minnesota. Uh, I was... <laughs> yeah. There's got to be a dark side to every cloud, so... I was not prepared for that winter. Like, <laughs> I was like, it'll be fine. I've got a windbreaker. What could go wrong? Uh. Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, let's, let's, let's rewind yeah. even further than that. And let's mm -hmm. talk about what got you into gaming in the very first place. I had always been a nerd. Like, I played video games. I think Magic the Gathering was probably the first tabletop game I took pretty seriously. But not long after that, I got into Dungeons & Dragons. 
I think uh, my first D&D book I just kind of got off the shelf because it looked cool. It was the monster manual. And I was like, <laughs> it's just a, a book of cool monsters. What are all these numbers? <laughs> That's a great place to start, right? I don't need a game. Yeah. I just need to read this. Right. Uh, I didn't actually take uh, board gaming super seriously until I started watching uh, Shut Up and Sit Down. Mm. And that combined with uh, extra credits on YouTube, like those came together and sort of made this idea of like, oh, game design. Like it made me think critically about games a lot. The first time I designed a game actually came out of um, Zombicide, which I had like, it was sort of the first time I had seen like a tabletop game that was so big and interesting and there was just so much happening. It was great. But there were just some tiny problems with Zombicide that I had that just frustrated me so much that I was like, with immense hubris, I was like, I could, I'll show them what's what. <laughs> Zombicide's an amazing game and they did some really cool work with Black Plague. But like the first design I ever did was just this little sort of asymmetrical miniatures game that was aping on a lot of the design decisions I really liked in Zombicide and taking out all the parts that I didn't care much for. Hmm. And uh, that was sort of my first uh, design. Did you actually play that version of Zombicide and how did it go? So the one that I did ended up uh, sort of evolving a bit and becoming like a pirate game, and uh, which meant that when Cool Mini or Not came out with uh, Rum and Bones, I was like, oh, come on. But... Uh, <laughs> Got scooped. No, uh, but yeah, no, I play, I play tested it a bunch. Like it, I got it to actually a pretty strong point. Uh, what was funny is that a lot of the ideas in that ended up becoming the skirmish mode of Star Wars Imperial Assault. So, really? Yeah, it's like, so I managed to, I recycled some of the mechanics that I had come up for that. So those got to see the light of day in bits and pieces. So that was wow. really fun. Yeah. Well, you mentioned when you went to interview with Fantasy Flight that you brought a, a prototype you've been working on. Was was that this or is that something yeah, totally different? Yeah, it was this little pirate game, which I think might have given them a little bit more confidence. Like, because I had like I played some Descent before flying out there, just kind of in preparation, and mm. like there were a bunch of mechanics. I mean, Imperial Assault is entirely like here are all of the things I didn't like about Descent removed, plus some ideas that I liked, plus some new new ideas that I think would be cool. But yeah, like I think a lot of the ideas that were in that pirate game ended up finding a new life in Imperial Assault. And I think that game sort of gave them uh, more confidence that I could do that job, certainly. Uh, mm. Honestly, it's uh, really not the way FFG normally does to throw a new designer onto a big project. I was uh, technically just sort of on the job as a developer to just, you know, help out uh, the other two lead designers, Corey and Justin. But what ended up happening is that the game was just so big and they just needed so much content and design work for it that I had I stepped up. And by the time they were deciding on cover credits, they were gracious enough to be like, hey, you know what? Jonathan did enough work. He should probably be on the box. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some uber geek cred right there. Oh, yeah. Came out of the gate swinging. It felt real good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. So I got to ask about uh, the Game of Thrones trivia game because I, I feel conflicted <laughs> about that. Right, because Game of Thrones super cool, trivia game super not cool. Like, how does how do you do that and make that still cool? Let me tell you, when that landed on my desk, I had that exact same uh, <laughs> array of thoughts. Uh, so the trivia game sort of started out like we had we had the HBO license. We had done a one trivia game beforehand. A lot of people don't know this, but Fantasy Flight made uh, Lord of the Rings trivia game, which really? was yeah, it was like kind of this adventure thing where you're like racing to like get to Mordor and like you answer trivia questions to progress and that was sort of like the idea was to take that and then make a update it and make a Game of Thrones version which um the sort of formats were actually really different right like Lord of the Rings is about a journey and Game of Thrones is more about this like world and this politicking and all these things 
so the game ended up evolving in a very different direction from that original Lord of the Rings start. But honestly, like that was sort of an interesting experiment with Fantasy Flight, where we were trying to make a game that would be sort of bring people together, be good for people who liked Game of Thrones and weren't super big on board games and were like, oh, hey, trivia, that seems neat. Uh, and also be like good for gamers. So like, I'm actually really proud of a lot of the mechanics that I put in there. And we got some pretty good uh, critical response from like iFilm and Kotaku. The Game of Thrones trivia game overall was my basically taking a very slim down, very lightweight area control game. And just instead of having dice or any other mechanic, I just had all of them resolve in push your luck answering ridiculous questions about Game of Thrones. <laughs> Like, it has ruined the Game of Thrones watching experience for me, let me tell you that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm well, sure. Yeah, it was like we had to use the show content, right? Because the show and the books disagree with each other, and this was with HBO. So it was like, okay, none of that awesome background stuff from the books could be in the trivia game. We had to just go with stuff from the show and from the show's, like, supporting materials. So it's like whenever a character would be like, I'll need 20 good men to do this or that, I'm like, all right, 20 men, yeah, yeah, all right. I write that down, and... <laughs> Every episode I watch now, I'm just on the lookout for like, oh, here's a weird number that they put out. Or, What's this thing made of? It's just forever yeah. now. That, that, that is terrible. Um, one of the things I really was excited about that we put into the Game of Thrones box was that we actually, it can be spoiler locked. You can actually choose. Hmm. Each card is like, each trivia set is for different seasons. So you can choose like, okay, this person hasn't seen season three. So we'll just do season one and two cards. All right. So working at Fantasy Flight, and I'm making an assumption here, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I assume that you're handed an IP, you know, whether it be Star Wars or Game of Thrones or Doom, you're handed an IP and say, okay, go find a mechanic that's going to fit this mold. Is that, is that true? Am I guessing correctly? Uh, it'll vary. Um, oftentimes that is the case. Sometimes the mechanics even come with. So like with Doom, it was mm. like, hey, we're going to update the original Doom board game, which started this whole Descent nonsense. So, you know, you, <laughs> we had that like, okay, it's got to be kind of like Imperial Assault, but better and Doom themed. So it's, it's, that was a much more constrained design space. In addition, because like I had already done everything I'd wanted with that system for Imperial Assault. So it was... Mm. So I was like, okay, so what am I going to do with Doom? We had to make it more different. And I'm really, really happy with what we came up with for Doom. And I'm really excited about that game. But other times, it'll be just things like, um, with the Game of Thrones trivia game, for example, we had no real mechanics in mind, just that we needed to fill this sort of trivia niche. It needed to be a little more mass market than our usual stuff and be Game of Thrones. And everything else was sort of up in the air. There were, at one point it was set in King's Landing. At one point there was like uh, a whole like, other combat system, all these different characters that could one-up each other. A whole bunch of mechanics could go fall in and out of that sort of thing. Games like Forbidden Stars, like that had one of the longest development cycles of any game that we've ever done. And it evolved so much over the course of its beginnings when we were just like, hey, we want a grand strategy game for 40k. What's that going to look like? Uh, we like these mechanics from StarCraft. We like these mechanics from elsewhere. Let's come up with some completely new stuff that was like just a huge melting pot and there was a whole lot of designers and developers that jumped in on that and it was really cool and other times we'll get situations where the game is almost fully formed like christian or Corey or another lead designer will just have a really good idea and we'll go nuts with it hmm. for like starting from a mechanical base but generally i think at ffg uh we get the theme first and we work to make the mechanics that suit that theme as much as possible right right so did you carry that design philosophy over when you're working on bargain quest did you start with a theme and then work for mechanics so bargain quest kind of started a little bit 
honestly, it was kind of, I'm not sure whether to describe the thing as a thematic or a mechanical thing first, but it just started with this idea of putting something in your window that you can't sell, but the game being about selling stuff, right? Like <laughs> right. just that risk reward of like, okay, you want to put something really nice in your window, but you also want to sell really nice things. So when do you do one or when do you do the other was sort of that one mechanic has followed through for the whole game. Uh, there were some points I was thinking, well, you know, fantasy is a bit overplayed. Like maybe we'll try a different theme on it, but uh, that sort of classic RPG thing, like players will players get it very immediately. And it makes a lot of sense that like fighters like certain items and won't buy items for wizards, right? Those kinds of right. things are very clear. But yeah, it, overall in my design philosophy, I tend to oftentimes have one mechanic, like mechanical thing that I really like. And then I will flow that into a thematic thing that I like and everything will try and mold about hitting those things together. Just trying to hammer that into shape with one mechanical decision that I think is the tentpole of the system and a theme that will reinforce that. Mm -hmm. I am a very thematic designer. Like I do, you know, I love coming up with additional content, additional things like, oh, this feels just like this. Oh, this is really clever. I oftentimes have to reel myself in because philosophically one of the big things is that I don't think that designing should necessarily be the fun part <laughs> like there's a lot of times particularly early on in my career i would get so excited about a really elegant and beautiful and cool design that just was like you would look at it and play and be like oh wow that that's really interesting but it would take like 10 minutes to play out and wasn't actually that fun like as interesting as something is i ha i always have to make sure it's like okay it's got to be play first got to be fun first right and that's kind of yeah where i've ended up landing currently with my design philosophy that's a good point. That's definitely something to think about. Well, we, we've talked a little bit about Bargain Quest. Let's step back on that. And for those that aren't familiar with the game, can you give us the pitch? Uh, yeah. So Bargain Quest is a drafting game for currently two to four players uh, where you take the role as a shopkeeper in an adventuring town. Uh, there are monsters attacking the town and heroes have come to defeat them. The heroes have no items or equipment and way too much money. And your job is to solve both of those problems for them. The game sort of plays out with uh, players sort of setting up their shop windows to try and draw in the wealthiest heroes and undercut their rivals, and then equip their heroes as much as possible and get as much of their money and send them off to fight the monster. If they do well against the monster, then your shop uh, gets some additional victory points. And if they die, well, worse things have happened. You've hopefully cleaned them out of all their money beforehand. <laughs> well, that, so that's interesting. I read that on your, your page. So you have victory points if the hero succeeds in their quest... But you also have, have money. So is money just a means to the end, or is money actually part of the victory condition? Yeah, so basically, uh, yeah, I had to actually, in the language, uh, stop calling the, uh, vic the points victory points. They're just called stars now. And at the end of the game, you earn one point for every 10 gold that you have and one point for every star. So okay, some players do really well selling heroes as much as they can to get them to do really well against the monster, whereas other players can just sort of double down on just making as much money as possible and just selling some maybe subpar items that are worth a lot of money to get to just vent cash out of the heroes and send them to die. And both of them are interestingly valid strategies. Right. Well, you mentioned uh, a little bit before how the, the idea originated that you wanted this game where you have this conflict of putting things in a shop window, but they're not for sale. Where did that come from? That original idea sort of came out of exploring different design spaces in like drafting and in other sort of game types, but valuing a card in certain ways. So some items might be really valuable 
if you place them in this space as opposed to that space and making those spaces mutually exclusive was just sort of an interesting thought experiment for me. And I think there are elements of games like Ladies and Gentlemen and Boss Monster that sort of toy with that sort of, uh, like Boss Monster has like, hey, you know, if you have enough rogue stuff, you'll pull rogues into your place. But uh oh, what if the rogues are too tough for you? You'll have to be able to make sure that you can kill them and that sort of situation. And then Ladies and Gentlemen have that sort of mini game that the ladies play where they like, put up a display thing to try and like either bait people into a store without a lot of stuff or to draw people away from a store with a lot of stuff. And that mind game was really fun for that sort of thing. It was just sort of this happy thought that I had just kind of getting lunch with uh, Sam Bailey uh, one day. Sam Bailey, who's the designer of uh, Forbidden Stars, and he's currently working with Patrick Later, uh, the designer of Vast, on a new game that's uh, coming to Kickstarter soon. So hmm. that'll be exciting. Uh, but yeah, like I was just sort of sitting talking with him. It's like, hey, wait. Wouldn't this be a cool idea? And he's like, you should make that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, so tell us about what, what did the very first rough hand-drawn version of Bargain Quest, how did that play out? And how is that different than what's, what's available today? Oh, man. So let's see. It started out with just a bunch of words in a Google Doc and then... Normally, I actually really like making my prototypes really nice looking just because I have a visual design background that kind of galls me when I don't have like that nice basic graphic design, which often leads me to pouring a bunch of like energy into uh, early prototypes that just go nowhere. Um, <laughs> but this time, like it, I actually was bereft of my resources. I like didn't have a laptop on me. I was on vacation for a week when this idea was percolating. So I mm. just took a bunch of index cards and just sort of like cut them into bits and like wrote on them with a marker and just created this early version of the game. It actually had a much more boss monster-like uh, luring system and the heroes operated on more of an AI, which was neat and created some neat gameplay moments, but it led to a whole lot of bookkeeping and a lot of kind of math throughout the game, mm. which just wasn't as fun. Also, there was no limit on the amount of cards you could store from round to round, which meant that over the course of the game, you would just have this enormous stack of cards and the drafting was kind of irrelevant because you had so much from previous rounds. The storage thing was immediately solved by like, I was like, okay, we've just got to have a hard cap. You can only keep so many. And that keeps like the hand size small. Like there's that idea where it's like uh, in working memory, a player can really only keep track of about a seven card hand or so. And you'll see, like, you'll see most games go from five to seven cards in their hand for that reason. So making sure to tamp that down was an important thing. The uh, uh, Hero AI system went for a very long time until a very late stage of the uh, design work. Eventually, we sort of shifted that away to this new heart system where all items kind of have a general appeal value. Where before, this item was three nice for rogues and two nice for fighters. So, like, mm. you know, it was like it, it, it led to just a lot more unnecessary bookkeeping and crunch uh, that we just sort of stripped out of the game. The monsters were also originally uh, just completely random, so you might hit a dragon immediately and then fight a goblin later. That was fixed very soon, so now they tear up in a sort of a better narrative progression of like, all right, we beat the goblin, now we have to fight the orc. We beat the orc, now we have to fight the witch. Like, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned on your page you've done a lot of playtesting. I think you even said, you know, all over the country. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so we've uh, we've got playtesting groups uh, that uh, we're corresponding with online. We sent uh, print and play stuff to some very close friends. Um, 
And uh, also, I do a fair bit of traveling, so I carried it around like to uh, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. We got a lot of wonderful testing done by the uh, volunteers and uh, other people there at the Shut Up and Sit Down Games uh, Lounge. Um, and uh, like friends from L.A., and I've, I've taken it to colleges and tested it out, taken it to little game stores uh, here and there. And just sort of getting as much feedback as possible and tuning the rulebook and making sure just everything goes well. Blind testing was a little trickier to get a hold of just because I did so much on like at event spaces. So it's like, oh, you right. got to demo it, right? You can't like when there's all this exciting stuff going on, you don't want someone to sit down and read a rule book that's immediately going to just completely <laughs> right. change their perspective. No one wants to do that, right? Yeah. I wanted to, but didn't quite pull off. Uh, so the Pandemic Legacy designers did a thing where they recorded like they had video recording of all of their playtesting groups. And I was like, oh, man, that'd be really cool. Uh, but they were just much more organized than I could possibly be, so that <laughs> that didn't quite come together. But uh, yeah, we got uh, a lot of very different eyes on the game and a lot of very different testers, and uh, that the response has so far have been very good, and every change that we've made has just made the game better. And I keep sort of getting things like, it's like, oh man, we had such a good time playing in San Francisco, and I'm like, oh god, it's so much better than it was in San Francisco. <laughs> Uh, any like very specific dramatic moments during a play test, either for for better or for worse, that kind of sticks out in your mind? Um, yeah, I think like my favorite events are when players either get really into a theme for their shop, or when they become very attached to specific heroes. There was this one point where uh, there's well. So it very often happens and that during these tests that I'll see a one shop that just ends up being just a meat grinder for heroes where anyone who shops there just dies. And players would then just create, like, if they have heroes that they like, they make sure it's like, okay, we can't let them go to that shop. We have to, <laughs> we have to like, put something nice in the window to make sure that they come somewhere else. And other times when uh, there's just this one hero that everyone just hated, because, like, no one could get cards that were that good for that hero. And that hero just wouldn't die. Like, it just manages, like, through the random chance of the game, that hero just managed to keep surviving. And so those elements, initially, I was really concerned about them. And, like, was trying, was considering designing away from them. But because they're sort of uh, something that everyone is playing with all the time, it actually created some really exciting moments that are now sort of, I'm trying to reinforce a little more in the game, where you have these situations of, like, uh, almost like hot potato, right? Where it's like, here's a character that no one wants, so everyone is going to now play differently to avoid that character. And then here's a character that everyone wants, and now everyone's playing differently. Either someone's going to try and go for someone else because they know everyone's going after that one. Those mind games and play decisions started getting really exciting, and watching those and making sure that the game design iterates towards those moments were really big things for me over the course of the game. Um, I There are a whole bunch of special heroes with fun little mechanics that we came to that are just that also lead to similar exciting moments like there's a witch hunter who's like a really strong hero but if they enter your shop you have to get rid of any uh wizard items that you have in your shop and that leads to a whole bunch of players being like oh god wait shoot i want him but i also really want to keep this magic wand there is like also a nobleman who's just garbage but shows up with buckets of money <laughs> And he's like, he's got like no classes. He's just like, he's terrible. But, you know, you could sell him anything. And so he's always really good for one round. And then like he, you vent him of all of his money. And then he like survives the encounter because he's got all this cool magic stuff. But then it gets discarded at the end of the round. And now he's got like $5 and no stats. <laughs> and now no one wants him. It's uh, pretty fun. Well, let's talk about your Kickstarter campaign. How are things going for you? 
Uh, yeah, so far, uh, I think we're on track to be a modest success. I'm pretty excited. We're about halfway funded after the first week. Um, and uh, yeah, like the response has been very positive. We've, we're sort of holding off on announcing any of the stretch goals that we've got planned until like we've, you know, we're confident in getting there, which we're getting to right about now, just because we didn't want to seem like, you know, too cocky. <laughs> right. Right. It seems like it always seems like a bit of hubris because like our goal is a little bit higher than I think most Kickstarter campaigns of this type. Uh, and that's partly because of wanting to make sure that all of uh, our really phenomenal artists get paid well for their work. Mm. We've got amazing work. Uh, the, our lead illustrator is, my, is actually my sister, uh, who, works, who worked at uh, Walt Disney Feature uh, Animation, where she wow. worked on like Tangled, Frozen, Big Hero 6, you know, small, minor films. <laughs> Just little things. Uh, you right, might have heard yeah. of them. So she did like a huge amount of art for this game, and I really want to make sure that she gets, you know, her dues, because... Uh, like she is immensely talented. She's doing a lot of children's books il illustration right now. Uh, cool. She worked on the new Tangled TV show. Um, we've also got guest artists, which are going in the uh, deluxe edition. We've uh, pulled in a whole bunch of amazing artists from across like the internet. So like Yuko Oda and Tyson Hess and a bunch of like just really awesome artists who are all really good. And I want to make sure that they get well compensated for their amazing work. And so that combined with uh, making sure that the product is in a really good state and really uh, just overall a nice object has our goal a little bit higher than a lot of people are expecting. And so that may have, uh, th that led to some conversations online uh, with people being like, why, why do you need this much money? And I'm like, well, I'll have you know. Because <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know a lot of Kickstarters actually uh, shoot for a lower goal, so they get funded much faster and then, then they get that nice bump because once a thing gets funded people are much more confident in backing it which right. always kind of disoriented me because i feel like the kickstarter model is well if you back it and it doesn't get funded well then you lose nothing right no loss no right. loss but a lot of people clearly have this idea of like oh well if it's not going to happen i don't want to commit any money to it and it's just that mental hitch which i do all the time like it's <laughs> like oh man you know like there were all there there are a whole bunch of games where i'm like Oh man, you know they're not. I don't know if they're gonna make it. Maybe I, uh, maybe I won't back it. But I'm like, wait, no, that's. But I want them to make it, so I should back it. <laughs> right. I have to like, yeah. It's just, it's such a different animal. Like Kickstarter is such a different object on the internet. Like the the ecosystem for it is so different from anything our capitalist society has encountered before. Mm. Bringing it all back to capitalism. Bargain quest. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I like how you go full circle there. That's that's very yeah. very impressive. So this is your first kickstarter campaign is that right uh this is the first game kickstarter campaign we've done uh, i have uh we've done other kickstarters uh for books before we did one okay. called curiosities an illustrated history of ancestral oddity which is a children's book that um we me and my sister did a while back we raised like about fifty thousand dollars on it and that was really nice i also worked with um the 1001 nights kickstarter so i've done like a lot of like book illustration stuff and like you know book publishing which is so much easier than games oh my god <laughs> i mean it's still hard it's still so hard but like every fa like every publisher you know like factory that knows how to put out a book knows how to put out a book you know whereas right. like these factories are like all right what kind of punch do you need what kind of this do you need like all these different kinds of finish and all that that are it's not just different stuff on different paper. It's like just a, a new object uh, that is making a new board game. And it's been a really weird experience going into this coming from FFG where I didn't have to think about any of this crap. 
Like, <laughs> right. I would like, you know, we shipped off Imperial Assault and then like six months later, I was like, oh yeah, it came out. Awesome. Like, <laughs> oh, you're just getting started too. Like you got a whole world ahead of you. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man, I'm excited. I mean, like we've got a lot of great support. Like our campaign manager, George Rohawk has done a lot of stuff before. Uh, he worked mm-hmm. on like the con man, uh, Indiegogo. He worked, he's worked on a couple of small game stuff. Uh, we're, you know, in touch with a lot of people. And like, I'm also getting wonderful advice from people like Tim Fowers, who has been a bit of a mentor for me over the course of this process, getting my bearings as uh, a first-time indie. Uh, as part of FFG's training, they make sure that you do a production job on a product. They make sure you do development. They make sure you do design. They kind of give you the full range of experience so that you know all of the steps. When thrown into the deep end of Kickstarter, I was slightly less intimidated than I think I would otherwise have been. I certainly wouldn't have tried this had I not had my uh, previous experience. So a lot of listeners on the podcast are aspiring game designers. They're perhaps putting their, together their first Kickstarter campaign. What advice would you have for them? Uh, I would definitely say talk to people, uh, go to conventions, like talk to other people who have done it. Like I would be nowhere without Tim Fowers, like letting me know what the hell, like, first of all, <laughs> when not to panic and when right. to like really like when kind of to focus on something and to knuckle down. Like, there were times where I'd go to Tim, he's like, oh, God, oh, God, I think this happened. He's like, no, it's fine, it all, that's normal. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Honestly, like, it is an amazing time to be a game designer, to get into the industry. There's a lot of really awesome stuff happening. Make sure that you have all of your ducks in a row. Like, just make sure that you sort of know what you're getting into and you're ready to devote the full time necessary to uh, keep a campaign going and to have everything progressing properly and also i think the thing that so far seems to be a huge boon to our campaign has been transparency is just being you know talking to people about things when someone raises a concern just like being like okay here's what's going on and maintaining that transparency uh people are much more forgiving to situations if they know exactly what's happening on your end which is really not how it works at like a big publisher where it's like okay have these very curated very clear you know marketing things you know, having those articles pre-written months in advance and all those things. In Kickstarter, it's much, you have a lot more agility in responding to things and in being, in connecting with the fan base. And I think it's really cool to be interacting with a community in the way that Kickstarter allows you to do. And I find that super exciting. And I think that's something that definitely uh, any designer should be leveraging. Good advice. Well, Jonathan, it's time for me to drop a little bomb on you, Uh which is this show has a, a, a dark little secret, which is we bring game designers on to the show, not necessarily to talk about their game or who they are, blah, 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 not that. What we're here to really do is play the game design challenge. Uh-oh. Game design challenge? Here's how this works. I'm going to find a random game theme. I'm okay. going to present that theme to you. And then I want you to chew it over, think about it, all preferably out loud, since this is a podcast, and Pitch back to me what that game could be. All right, all right. Bring it on. Oh, boy. You up oh, for that? It's going to go terribly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, whatever. You're a pro. Oh, you're a pro. Right, this yeah, is, I got this. this. Is... What could go right. wrong? Right. He said with immense hubris. <laughs> okay, so let's find a theme, and that theme is going to be... Okay, it's pretty good. Underworld right. Shopping Spree. Okay, okay. Hmm. Well, I mean, I've already got a, a shopping thing going for this, so I would probably need to move away from 
the things that I'm doing in Bargain right, Quest. Right, right. We got to explore some uh, new, new ground here. Right. Right, of course. So, like, ostensibly, I would say that... Uh, un- I'm going to say Underworld, not like the film Underworld, unless we're talking about the the film Underworld. But I'm thinking, uh, like, we're talking about the criminal Underworld, right? Sure, it could we be. Got crime. Yeah, it could be. So, yeah. So, like, I think, like... I'm always into like exploring kind of the background of these sorts of things. So let's say we've got a heist situation, right? Where you've got uh, your crew and you need to go on this big heist, uh, but you need the gear and equipment to go on that heist. Mm. And like you can either steal that stuff, which will use some of your heisting resources, or you can attempt to buy it honestly <laughs> with uh, the money that with whatever money that you start with. And I would say that it might be a sort of um, you have you'll have a mini game possibly played in real time mm-hmm. uh, where you play through the where you play through uh, tiny bits of crime using these components that you've bought and any that like uh, I would say I would probably honestly use a lot of uh, flicking mechanics because I just love dexterity <laughs> games. Okay. So I would yeah so I would say you've got this like underworld market that you can uh, go to different places by flicking your token around. And then once you've gathered up all of your stuff, you'll then go to a separate board where you'll get to play through this crime game where you have to do a uh, crime spree. So it goes from shopping spree to crime Mm. spree and back again. And you'll do that play loop a couple times until finally whoever has gotten uh, the most overall money, uh, who's made the the most... uh, You know what? Mm, No, you got to be spending money, right? We got to encourage players to spend money. So instead, I would say you're after some kind of crazy elaborate prize, like, you know, this super diamond or this great painting. So it's not about the money. It's about the nice thing that you're after. Uh, And you've got to So, yeah, you've got to make sure that you buy all of the resources and you've got to pay for like you've got to pay off uh, snitches. You got to pay off. uh, You know, you got to get drivers. You got to hire. You know, you got to you got to spend a lot of money right you get a nice you get a nice big budget to make the best heist possible right and then you go and try and make get the big score that with uh just a number of weird dexterity mechanics to <laughs> get these crew members and to like honestly like i feel like i feel like i really want to emphasize that even though i play or i design so many big mechanical heavy like miniature tactics games a lot of nice like you know, like, oh man, I could do this and then ponderous, whatever. Like my first love in tabletop games has been like click clack lumberjack <laughs> and catacombs and these just absurd uh, dexterity games. And I'd love to design one someday. <laughs> oh man, dude, you could do things like where you have like the laser wire traps or like strings that you lay out and you have to like flick your character. Oh yeah. Sight lines. You do sight lines by laying out string. And then if your uh, disc hits that string up, oh, you've been caught. Like wow. so you can create these little obstacle courses. I think that could be, that could be really fun. I, yeah. That's pretty oh, brilliant. Why has oh, no one man. done that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, and you could have like a bunch of stuff that can roll around, and that like, oh, <laughs> you need to probably cook up kind of a neat AI system. But I love the idea of a dexterity heist game. Well, Jonathan, That'd I think cool. you're on something there. Next year on Kickstarter, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. Though I have to say, I mean, as much as the dexterity sounds awesome. I think uh, I think my favorite part is maybe that moral dilemma of do I do I steal this or do I actually just pay for it? I don't know. You know, I can just, just imagine the mobster, you know, having that that mm-hmm. difficult decision to make. Like, should I? You know, Grandma's yeah. always telling me I should go right, but I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, look, I mean, you know, fifty bucks—that's a fair price for this. 
Hey. But I have a gun. That's right. What should I do? I don't know. And bullets are way cheaper. <laughs> like, yeah, do you risk antagonizing this store and never going back there, but getting, like, you know, a whole bunch of stuff out of it? Like, I think that. Right. Oh, I love it. That emotional, uh, that emotional that's beat. That's pretty great. Well, Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. It's been awesome hanging out. Thank you for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Best of luck to you and the rest of your campaign for Bargain Quest. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and the best of luck to you guys on uh, on hardback, man. Oh, like, thank you, thank you very much. It's uh, it's already going much better than I ever dreamed, so I won't complain <laughs> about that. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's so good. I got to I actually I got to play that at GDC. Oh, did you? Uh, oh, cool, Tim. Oh god, it's so good. It's so oh, good. Thank you. When you launch the moral dilemma flicking game, let me know and we'll <laughs> talk again. Hell yeah, you'll be the first to know. I'm sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was Jonathan Ying the founder of Bargain Quest Games, and the designer of Bargain Quest, currently on Kickstarter. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Your Tables on Fire is brought to you this week by Hardback, the prequel to Paperback, a game designed by Tim Fowers and, curiously enough, me. It's currently on Kickstarter, so go check it out. You can follow Your Tables on Fire on Twitter, at TableFire. Also, check out our website for show notes and a link straight to Bargain Quest. That's www.yourtablesonfire.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and even BoardGameGeek. Hit us up on any of those sites and give us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Well, until next time, go light it up. Go light it up.